I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there and welcome to episode number 37 of Tell Me Your Tales. My name's Brady Trelfall. What I do on this podcast is I have chats with people that I find pretty interesting or wise, people who are successful and people who are kind of really motivating to talk to and um, yeah, just try to get in their heads a bit and have good and, good and deep and kind of interesting conversations with them just to uh, yeah, see how they operate and what happens in their life. This week's uh, conversation is with Raf Bohr. Raf is, well, he's amazing in a nutshell. It's pretty hard to summarise all the stuff that uh, Raf has going on at the moment, but I'll do my best to try. Raf is the Managing Director at Front Runner Sports Coaching and Physiotherapy. So, yeah, I guess if you can imagine a coaching group which caters from everyone from the elite athlete through to kind of the general punters and fun runners and, and those kind of people enter, entering the running scene, he, um, in that component of the sports coaching, they do kind of strength and conditioning. He travels to races with people. Um, they look at diet, nutrition, all those kind of things under the one coaching uh, window, I guess, or umbrella is probably a better word to use. So a really interesting concept that you can go to one person, our one company, uh, Raf's company, and get all that under the one roof, which I think is pretty innovative. And probably something that we're not seeing everywhere in Australia at the moment, but um, yeah, definitely appealing. I almost wanted to yeah, sell up the house and move to Perth after talking to Raf. It sounds like the environment he's creating over there is really uh, appealing and motivating for a distance runner. He's also the director at the running centre, so um, specialist running store. So he knows his stuff about kind of apparel and shoes and yeah, we have a bit of a chat about that and marketing in there as well. Uh, Raf has some excellent philosophies around coaching and how to get the best out of your own running and we kind of talk about that a bit and unpack his coaching philosophy, uh, why he thinks Australians aren't running as fast as they used to, really uh, good response in there and yeah, all things running, it was an hour that went by super fast and one that I'm really thankful that Raf gave to me to record this to then bring to you. If you've got a chance, be sure to uh, review this podcast on iTunes. That's one way you can support the show. Another way is to post it on social media and kind of spread the word a bit. I'm really grateful. That's one way you can um, probably show your gratitude for the show as well, for the people that do that. Anyway, here's the conversation with Raf. Um, as I said, so easy to talk to, wonderful person, uh, some excellent responses. And yeah, I hope you get something from it. A big thank you to Zach Newman, who... Uh, said to me a couple of weeks ago that this was a man I should certainly get on the show and um, yeah, he kind of put us in contact. Anyway guys, that's enough from me, spoken for way too long as per usual. Enjoy this chat on episode number 37 of Tell Me Your Tales with Raf Bohr. 
Rightio. Raf, welcome to Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. It's great to have a chat. No worries at all. And it's, uh, I'm a bit nervous about this one because I don't. I definitely know that we haven't met face-to-face before. And because you're on the other side of the country, I don't know a lot about you. So I'm interested to see where this conversation's going to go for the next 60 minutes. Yeah, I must admit, it's um, it seems like a world away to get on a plane and head over east. So I, I can understand it. From it's a bit the same from this end as well. It, it's very sparse uh, that we get across there too. So it's good to have a chat and connect the dots. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, what I usually do is get the guests to introduce themselves. So do you mind just uh, giving the listeners a bit of an insight into your life? Yeah, well, look, I'm basically a a running tragic is what I would um, what I would describe it. So pretty much everything um, that that I've done sort of in terms of business over here in the West reflects that sort of passion for running. So in terms of professional qualifications, um, I'm a physiotherapist. So I graduated 18 years ago now as a physio. And along the way, I got a little bit uh, of an opportunity to work with some elite athletes from over east. So one of my friends uh, and I went to uni together. He ended up working with Nick Badeau for a period of time. And he had a bit of a break where he came back and did some more study. And I took his place um, and worked a bit with Nick in about 2006, um, and that gave me a bit of a kick along with my own career. So I ended up pushing on a bit with my own running, went from being like a, a state champion over here to, to focusing on what's called duathlon, um, and progressed to being world number three. So my best races were six in the world duathlon championships for the for the pros and third in the European championships. So had a good crack at that. Um, when I was travelling, I suppose, I started seeing some good retail stores and thought that we didn't have um, a comparable running specialty store in Perth and so we started that um, once we got a manager there then we started coaching um, once we got a manager there we got back in the physio game and now we've got started there and got good line managers and great team now we've got a kids running program and, and we're getting into consulting so I think everything's just spread from trying to I suppose provide solutions for runners here in Perth that I've picked up from speaking with people much more knowledgeable or much more experienced than me and then just trying to get a great team together over here to deliver on on those things and if we get the right uh, the right formula we can sort of scale up and and continue to expand yeah right so much there we can tap into but i want to start with um let's maybe go to your career in the duathlon how did that all come about oh well, without getting too much into it i think at about the same time which uh where I got that opportunity with Nick. Also, my youngest uh, brother died in a car accident, so I was probably a bit of a, a therapy in retrospect. I didn't quite realise it at the time, but I certainly picked up a lot more vigour um, and and got sort of stuck into the sport a bit more seriously. So I think for a period of time, it, it was probably a, a pretty much a primary focus, um, just getting out in the fresh air and doing a bit more exercise than what I'd maybe done before with a bit more focus. Um, and the duathlon just gave me a great challenge. So we got the chance to travel a lot, my wife and I, and when I had my first son. Uh, he travelled with us a bit, but ultimately I think it was just a case of challenging myself, mate. It could have been anything. It could have been um, running a, a set distance, but it was like focusing on duathlon and um, trying to improve my, my result at the World Championships. I think I first time went to the World Championships, I was like 14th, then 12th, um, and then 6th. And then as business sort of picked up, um, I probably couldn't quite focus uh, enough attention to get any better than that. So I think it was just a way to channel my energies, mate, into something physical, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, number six in the world. And you were running pretty low 30 minutes for 10Ks off the bike too, weren't you? Yeah, it's the old dreaded conversation between a duathlete, a runner and a triathlete about how active the <laughs> are. So I, I don't get drawn. One day here back in Perth, all the runners were, oh, you reckon you're better than us all? You, you never run running races. And uh, I said, guys, my biggest my biggest danger here is getting divorced. If I go from 
take my wife all around Europe and, and then come back and start running races on a Sunday against you blokes. So I won't even have a marriage. I'll get the way 50% or, or more of everything. And uh, eventually they baited me enough. So I, probably the best running race I ever did, I did a 14.45, I think, 5K track race um, in the build-up to one of the seasons to try to, you know, take on some of the local runners. But um, I probably never quite got uh, the running times that, in retrospect, I would have liked to have maybe focused on one or two running races because it was probably my passion. Uh, but the duathlons was the focus, so it is what it is. Yeah, for sure, mate. Hey, unpack that relationship with Nick a bit. So were you like an assistant coach over in Perth for his athletes, or how did that work? Well, no. no so basically, mate, back then I was just doing physio work. So essentially, um, I my, my mate used to be married to Benita Johnson. Um, he, uh, he was basically working a lot with Nick's team out of Teddington in London. Um, he came back to do a, a postgraduate um, study here in Perth. And I was planning on going over to Europe for a bit of a getaway. And, and so I sort of got chopped in as a physio in his absence. Um, and it, it was a great opportunity to see, um, you know, the great work that, that Nick's done and the great the great programs when Craig Mottram was at his, at his zenith, I suppose, seeing someone um, compete at that high level uh, was, was quite incredible and sort of, you know, quite motivating for me professionally and personally to see that, that sort of unfold a little bit. We were seeing him beat Mo Farah. Um, at Crystal Palace, at the the rain, the top of his rain there was, uh, yeah, it was a great time. So I, I just sort of, unfortunately, it came to an end when I had a crash on my bike and broke broke my wrist. So I couldn't, wasn't much use to Nick once my wrist was broken. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there'd have to be <laughs> yeah. a couple of like pinch me moments, though, wouldn't there, when you're kind of working with those kind of athletes? Oh, look, I think um, we came. Uh, in retrospect, you probably see it clearer, but I think we came in off the wave of um, of Jerry Schumacher, and he was very, uh, I suppose, new. Um, at that time, he just had a few really top graduates out of Wisconsin, uh, Simon Bayrou, Matt Tegenkamp, Chris Selinski. So those guys just were first trip to Europe, eyes wide open. Nick referred them in for you know, for some physio. And then, you know, in retrospect, obviously, you see Selinski, the first white guy under 27 minutes. Tegenkamp was, you know, up near the medals at the World Championships and Bayrou was, you know, top runner for Canada. So there's things like that where it looks a lot better in retrospect. And then, obviously, what... what I think Craig Mottram did sort of, I think re, uh, I think it recalibrated what a young Western Caucasian kid thought they could do in the 5,000 and 10,000. I think he doesn't quite get the respect he deserves for how we change consciousness um, around what was possible and how how mentally uh, driven he was to sort of achieve that. I think he's probably, for me, the standout. So he's just seeing how hard-working uh, Craig Mottram was and how headstrong he was to try to challenge what I believe was sort of like a systemic belief that African runners were better. He sort of, with Nick's help, obviously at the time, um, I think he really he, he believed that he could beat anybody, and that was that was good to see as someone who grew up maybe thinking that 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 wasn't possible that um, that be the case. He sort of challenged that, and uh, and in a lot of times proved that maybe it was true. Yeah, I guess. Um other than genetics, can you kind of unpack any routines or you know any kind of tips that you got from them that you thought was definitely kind of the performance indicator that to go to that next level? I think I, I, I think um, before I before I worked with Craig, I I worked with his brother. Actually, I was a physio over here for the Perth Wildcats basketball team, and. I, I suppose one thing you have to say is if there's two people from one family who who are both professional athletes in different sports, there has to be, well, I reckon 50% of it's genetics and then behavioural stuff that they've picked up from, from their parents is another thing. But I think the thing that struck me was how unglamorous it was 
um, and how just hardworking all those athletes were. It was Collis and, and all those guys, just how humble, um, hardworking and diligent um, they were. And and like anything, if you're a, if you've trained in systems, I suppose you also see things that potentially you think could be done better. Like I look at the system that 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 was functioning then and i suppose if you're an analytical brain you think well maybe this and this could have added even more value to that program or oversight in this area so i think it 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 unlocks as many questions as it does gives you answers but i think that the thing that i learned the most um was probably i think the belief he had in himself craig mottram um the the um alignment nick could create in his systems and processes and, and beliefs around coaching and then how if everybody was just fundamentally focused on the one thing of running fast, how it became very much like a job and, and they, they treated it uh, as such. They were very professional um, and, and it was it was amazing how uh, how I got to see that up close. It really, it really gave me great insight. Yeah, right. So then take me back to you've moved back to Perth, um, you've come off the injury and then the idea to start your own running store or the whole kind of packaged running store, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think in in retrospect, I couldn't use my hands very much because um, it was quite a bad accident I had on my bike. So I was out of action probably for six or nine months um, without being able to use my hands as a physio. So essentially, I probably had to use my brain more than I'd been using <laughs> it before. Um, and Physios are smart that, people. Uh, well, you, you, you try, they? but yeah. you know the, the 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 idea maybe uh, you know I was you know it's it's all it's all sort of doesn't quite line up as you reflect on it lining up. But I suppose I had a new kid. Um, my first son Sebastian was born around that time so I had to just get back to work and I so I probably just try to be as resourceful as you can and, and, and do what you can and um, out of that I suppose the, the vision of the running shop started to sort of unfold um, and grow from that point onwards and I think um, we started that proper I think in 2009 before we got, got the running centre up and running yeah that, that was sort of when we got it going So give me some context what's the running scene in Perth like in 2009? Oh, look, I think the the way I would the way I would sort of describe everything that that I do over here is that uh, again after seeing what I saw traveling a bit and seeing um, I, I think that any culture is is defined by the belief and the and the coaching systems that are in it and I, and, I, and, in, and if I was honest I would have thought that um, we were probably let down when I was a kid in Perth in terms of how committed coaches were to to learning they, they'd have an opinion but they weren't necessarily studied or learned about coaching and and we had this disconnect from um uh athletes over east where we look at the times and think they were too quick and and i think the whole thing for me is creating a system where if a kid from western australia not just me but more trying to contribute to a system whereby if a kid from western australia wants to be a world champion or olympic champion the example i give is well herb elliott was just born down in scarborough so Mm. the talent's there it's the systems and the culture that need to change and if we create a system and a culture where a young kid is told that it's possible to be a world champion, the kids won't second guess it. And so for me, it's all about culture and expectations and systems and making sure that if I'm a coach uh, or we are, we're coaching or we're doing physio, that we're, we're doing our darndest to be buddy good at it and putting in as much effort as we can to be better at it. So if that kid comes across who has the talent of Herb Elliott, that um, we see that realised. And it's about it's about feeling as though you've got a sense of duty to that that process and the sport of running and making sure um, that we have a good running culture um, because you know it's something that that I'm obviously very passionate about but also it's something that served served me very well personally and professionally. Yeah, right. Um, is there kind of like state races like the Athletics Victoria or Athletics New South Wales kind of season during the winter and uh, summer, or how's it work? 
Yeah, so pretty much if you our winter season is probably a little bit of a of a of an area for development, I would say. We sort of somewhere on the line cross country sort of really fallen off off the radar a bit. And I think it's a bit of a, a reason why maybe we're seeing some really good middle distance talent now coming through, but maybe not as much in the long distance. So I think it's something that, that maybe needs to be addressed in the winter season. It's pretty much all fun runs. And so we're getting um, events like the Sea to Surf and the HBF run, which are local icons, but um, not really cross country or winter um, stuff. And they tend to they tend to be the focus of a lot of the athletes and the state championships for cross country and and the road often are attracting you know 50 60 70 runners which is a bit less than what would happen over east so the fun runs i think take precedence in the winter and then we have a very strong um, track season now i think the distance events probably a little bit light but i think certainly in the middle distance i think we're starting to get comparable to most states out of sight of maybe victoria new south wales for our depth in the you know in the in the 1500 800 3000 um you know, you see Matt Ramsden come through, you see yeah. Luke Graves, you yeah. see Ben Chamberlain, Peter Bowl, all these guys, their formative years are well spent and there's some really strong coaches and, and stuff working in the field and the sprint events. So I think track's looking very strong. I think the distance stocks are sort of the culture still developing there, especially the winter season's a bit of a, a, bit of a soft spot. Yeah, let's go back to, um, you touched on your system before, your training kind of system. Is that something you developed overseas or what's your kind of coaching philosophy? Um, I, I think you, you take bits and pieces, but fundamentally, I think, um, I suppose you use the word system. I think you, you talk about like um, Dick Telford, Pat Clohesse. Um, I, I love distance coaching, so I'm a little bit different from, from a middle distance coach. But for me, Pat Clohesse, um, Dick Telford and, and probably Chris Wardlaw, hearing indirectly from Mon a bit about him. But to me, I think the one who, who I found the most – um, fascinating and and um, and the most interesting is probably Clo, and just having a, a chat with Pat Clohesse a few times, having a chance to sort of just talk to him or any of those guys. I, I think fundamentally they understand the Australian culture, and and when they develop a system, they they do it within the context of a culture. And I think we have a climate in Perth that people can train year round, whereas in Europe they have to periodise their training a lot differently because of the climatic factors and stuff that are that have been well considered by those sorts of smart guys who i described before so from my perspective really um we're mainly trying to hit five training zones um in our endurance athletes and we very selectively would try to get them up to to vo2 max so a lot of our our system is based around the three pillars of um, anaerobic threshold development um, volume development um, and then avoiding missed days so consistency and resilience physical and mental so that we can try to build um, an efficient system so we have um, strength and conditioning coaches physiotherapists um, you know coaches exercise physiologists we have a almost like an institute based private enterprise where we have all those services available to our runners um, and it's pretty much now at the point where we have say five elite guys under 31 minutes for 10,000 um, we're getting some some good feed through there our best young guy at 20 is 30 10 and 14 25 for, for 5,000 so good progress um, but basically we're still just trying to build year on year. So sort of some of our best athletes or most of our best athletes are making just longitudinal progression um, and we're just building them up gradually because we, we do a lot of you know data analytics with all our coaching. So one of our girls, for instance, Rochelle Rogers, um, hit uh, a 244 marathon last year, but we've basically every marathon, you know, 257, 254, 250, 247, 244, we're always just monitoring her loading and, and increasing different elements at the right time to try to build her for the long term. 
Um, and, and I suppose the system's all about, I suppose, understanding what load is manageable and, and what gain is sustainable um, when you're implementing a training load with the athlete. Maybe it breeds a, a subtle conservatism, but I think in the fullness of time, um, we'll see very good results from it. Yeah, it must be exciting for you as coach. Oh, look, we love it. Yeah, yeah, we love it. It's it's good fun, mate. At the end of the day, it, it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like more of a passion. Um, so I feel sort of pretty lucky. And we've got a very, some really incredible um, people that we work with as well. I think that's a big part of it. Like we have some very smart young guys like our coaching manager, Ben Green, our physio, Mark Sees, a sub four minute miler. Um, our manager, operations manager, Keely, just won the Oceania Championships in the 800. Um, we've got a strength and conditioning coach who's worked with a lot of elite football teams. So we've got a really good team of people to, to work with and learn from. Um, and I think that keeps everybody sort of developing and, and having fun at the same time. Yeah. Can we go back to those sub-31 guys? So for the people that don't know those uh, training systems you kind of mentioned before, what kind of what would a week look like for those guys, I guess, to unpack yeah, yeah. So I suppose from from my my perspective, I think the the first thing that we need to develop is the is the VO two max. So in any of our of our younger kids, the volume um, is probably secondary to the development of the VO two max. So when we're having our juniors coming through now, which is relatively new, um, the big ceiling we're trying to get for our our long distance athletes is is a high VO two max or a good three thousand or five thousand, but we're trying to also get enough recovery for them to really get good movement quality, good biomechanics um, and so forth. So um, that's sort of like, I suppose, a junior athlete for us is all about developing that that ceiling. And then as we start adding in load, our, our senior athletes that are running those sorts of times are probably doing one VO2 max, one threshold and one tempo session Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, um, one to two strength and conditioning sessions which are individually prescribed and then depending on how much load they can manage, um, they might well be doing um, four, five um, additional runs a week, um, normally sort of a couple of those long runs on Sunday and Wednesday, and then a couple of active recovery runs before the gym work on Monday and Friday. Um, and then as they get able to, if they're going up to the marathon, we probably remove the VO2 max work and insert another hill session and probably try to get them running up to twice a day. So we've had probably... I think now we've had about 38 runners break three hours for the marathon that we've coached, recreational and, and so forth. Um, but the fastest so far is only 2.25. So we've had about seven guys under 2.36. Um, so we're getting good gradual progression, but we're probably still waiting for a kid to come through who's got a really good ceiling that we can then convert into a marathon. So I think the young guy, um, Nick Harmon, who's the state champion over here, ran a 30.10 um, when he was 20 years of age of about 110 k's a week i think he um probably potential wise um is the one that i think might be the first wave of of international representation for us yeah pretty exciting times hey um just going back to that you said you had 38 runners under three hours so how big is the whole coaching group if you've got 38 at that pace well, sort of obviously at different that that's since we started but look in a week now we would service about a thousand units of service to runners per week so um, we probably have um, seven eight junior locations where we're running sessions around Perth we have three um, senior locations then we have our elite program and then we have our physiotherapy um, dietetics coaching um, clinical coaching uh, triathlon programs and stuff like that so essentially now um, yeah we would see a thousand people or we would provide a thousand units of service a week 
so some people might come in once or twice for sessions or whatever. But when you add it all up, there's a lot of a lot of um, a lot of stuff going on in a week for us to to sort of keep sight on. Yeah, yeah that's it's, massive. It's busy. That'd be yeah. that'd be the biggest in Australia, wouldn't it? No one else be servicing that many people. Um, I think I th- yeah. Look, you probably you probably know as much as me. I think look for us, it's it's just about basing it off the precedent that comes before it and trying to just make sure we're delivering solutions so the way i look at any any service that we provide is once we hit a critical mass um in a certain demograph we're missing we're having people either disengaging because they're not stimulated enough or or disengaging because they feel as though it's not the right level for them so if you're if you're mindful of how the the runner is viewing the training environment you'll see the ones that are not stimulated enough and need to be progressed and and then the key for me is to make sure that we offer once we get to scale not to be complacent but to then offer solutions that reflect the runner being able to continually progress because if the runner isn't stimulated or they're not provided with the right solution then they won't come back so for us you know it's about looking at it completely from the runner's perspective and providing solutions when we have the right scale that meet their needs and then if we if we listen and we wait till we're pushed instead of jumping into things, then we, we continue to make good strategic decisions. Yeah, I can imagine that would throw up a few challenges, though, as well, the the range of different people that would come to you. Like, if you've got people, you know, kind of couch to 5K and then you've got the elite guys as well at the other end? Yeah, and that's I think that's where we're lucky. I think because without sort of, um, you know, coming from a physiotherapy background, I suppose, or, or from a medical model, I suppose when I grew up looking at medical doctors, you understand that when somebody becomes more interested in a certain area you're better off to let them continue to develop and refine their skills in one area and so what we try to have is is a real clear modulation where if if you know if we find that we need a beginners group then we have a coach that's passionate in providing that solution we don't try to be all things to all people so as we progress our coaches start to specialize and the role that they play becomes quite specialized so i think if i look at a lot of coaches they 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 when i go to a an environment where I speak with other coaches, what I'm more than happy to do is if someone knows more than me in biomechanics, I'm going to bring them on as a consultant. I'm not going to go beyond my scope. I might know biomechanics quite well, but I'm not going to go beyond my scope. And I think a lot of coaches probably don't feel comfortable yet outsourcing and creating a network of people that they work with. Coming from a medical model, when you're dealing with people in pain or, or people more, more, more ill, you know that your first duty is to provide them with the best service for them. So I think what I always look at is is how can we provide coaches or a framework which is suiting the runner. And if you focus on the runner, it becomes clear that you need certain coaches or certain services and that person must be a specialist, um, not a generalist. Yeah, yeah, it's good thinking. And I agree with you. Like There are so many people that don't like handing over power to other people when it's their athlete and they have sole responsibility for them. Yeah, I think that's, look, that's, that's knowledge. If you're knowledgeable and you're working with people who – who know a bit more than you it's in the best interest of everybody to make that referral and make that connection so i'm very comfortable growing up in a medical model that you know we worked in teams we worked um collaboratively and we try to have the same approach i think about us as specialists working in running and i, I think the sooner coaching becomes more like a professional um service provider um the better it is for the culture of, of coaching yeah. Hey, um, I want to tap into your kind of headspace a bit. Obviously, uh, you're a very vi- busy man, so, and all this is pretty innovative. So how do you, what kind of personal routines have you got in place and how do you go switching off? Like, I can imagine your head's going at a million miles per hour. <laughs> um, you go for a run. Yeah. 
yeah, go for a run. But look, I've got two kids that are pretty active and um, it's sort of um, one of those things where you know, my accountant said to me a few years ago exactly what you just said. So every school holidays we try to have at least one to two weeks off, um, recharge the batteries. Um, and I think it's like any small business. You can you can come back and see things much clearer when you get that little bit of headspace. You're sort of, when you're in it, head down um, and focusing on it, you, you can become a little bit inefficient and so you, you take your, your time to restock and I think it's like an athlete recovering from a physical load I mean for me I think when you get that break you see the structures much clearer and you see the gaps and the deficits and, and what you can do to improve it as well so I think the breaks are really important so every every sort of three months we're getting one to two weeks of holidays which is good yeah that balance is important hey um you spent some time in Kenya as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we did a trip there Talk four us years through ago that. yeah Ah well, look. I think um, it was it was just I suppose every runner's dream now. And so I see this um, this guy, this sweat elite, trying to get people to fund him to go there and watch Kipchoge train. I'm like, damn, we should do that again. That was fun. <laughs> you were there. Um, yeah, but no. Nah, look, I think um, the way I would describe it is um, a complete absence of ego. So I think um, when I was there, just seeing athletes that, like, if I was there, you know, ten kilos above my fighting weight. Um, they would expect that I could keep up. And if I didn't, it was sort of on me to realise that they would never negatively reinforce another person like we would. So I think the big thing for me was they had a very transient hierarchy where if you went there, they expected you were good. If they, if you went there, they expected you would work. If there was 10 guys and they were doing 10 1Ks, everyone did one rep. Whereas I think in the West, we burn ourselves out a bit in training by the guy who thinks he's the best in the group has to lead all 10 reps. Um, and there's a hierarchical view on how people how people think whereas in kenya it was very much kip saying if he was doing 10 1ks he didn't need to lead everyone he just worked he'd, he'd do the work much more sustainably and much more efficiently um they knew what pace needed to be run they just hit the training as part of their build-up um and i think they just um gave a really good insight into you know to to communal living the best story that i got was we met Saeed chief shaheen and he had a palace in eldoret where uh, he'd set up his mansion but when he was training, he'd come into Iten and train with um, all the other runners and sleep on the floor. And I said, well, mate, why are you, why are you um, leaving the palace? He goes, because if I, if I stay in the palace, everyone here will beat me. You know, so I think they have that humbleness about preparation. And um, I think that I, I sort of respect that sort of that work rate and that humbleness uh, and that discipline uh, was great to see. Yeah, and um, did you take a bit out of their coaching? Like a lot of, I guess their marathon works probably traditionally a bit longer in their sessions. Like, did you pull a bit out of that? Yeah, certainly. I think like, um, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it, it, it's an area where potentially I think that the characteristic that probably struck me most that was different was the diet, um, that the fact that they were eating food straight out of the ground. I think for all the things that have been discussed, about the benefits i think obviously there's a lot but i think the thing that's not thought about the most is probably their diet and how literally um after a few days staying there i, I was just like couldn't wait to get a coke i was that craving sugar and i think um they, they don't have a lot of that sugar in their diet and they have a lot of corn maize and a lot of uh, real basic root vegetables um and they stay very lean they're very well fueled and then I think that allows them to probably train a bit more. I think the fuel comes first almost. You can't outrun a bad diet. And yeah, I think yeah. the, the thing that I, I thought in retrospect that, that probably is a limiter for Western athletes in endurance sport, like if you look at Derek Clayton running 208 in 1968, 
and then you look at our marathon runners now running 212, 213. I think you're looking at probably strong men now, but I think you're looking at bad diet and bad metabolism and bad ability to store glycogen, to, to have enzymatic and, and um, endocrine function that effectively um, consumes uh, fat stores and burns fat stores. We have a bias towards um, sugar, and I think the diet is something that uh, is really needs to be addressed um, uh, because I think that's the biggest difference that I saw, um, that I think the fueling that we have is, is very poor. That's um, pretty interesting stuff. Like I know I've read Running with the Kenyans and um, I've asked a few people. I asked Ken Green that same question that you kind of just touched on about why are we running so much slower than we were back in the 70s and 80s. And, um, yeah, I hadn't heard that diet response before. Yeah, well, my neighbour's an endocrinologist, so he's, he's, you know, he's a smart guy. He loves his running as well. So he's always – we're always sort of discussing – um, these sorts of uh, of things around the table. So I think, look, I, I honestly think it's a big one, and I reckon it's it's the processing um, and and the poor quality of, of nutrition um, is something. He's always he he's the one who's telling me he thinks that's a limiter. And as he's educating me more on it, and I, I reflect back more stories of what I've seen, I think that's probably um, I think a big big one to to consider. Yeah, anything else he he passes on? Any other nutrition kind of facts or tips and tricks for the listeners? Um, oh, look, I think in terms of of um, endocrine function, probably probably not. I think he's really good on the on the fueling side, but I think more. Um, I think the area that that I think we'll see big improvement is like uh, more strength and conditioning, and I suppose um, getting more more strength and conditioning stuff in, into programs is probably where the people who I speak with now add more value is, is strength and conditioning coaches and, and building a stronger, stiffer body for, for more efficient economical running. So I think guys like chatting with, say, Philo Saunders or, or really good strength and conditioning coaches working with football clubs, um, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for having some good good strength and conditioning coming through a bit more in, in programs and, and stuff like that's probably the, the latest wave that I'm sort of seeing adding value to our to our thinking. Yeah, and other than diet, do you think there's anything else to explain why our marathoners are running a bit slower? I could guess back in the 80s and 90s there was a, a stack of guys kind of running in between that maybe 213 and kind of 218 um, bracket, but even now we've kind of only got two or three guys under that qualifying. Well, there's probably five in general under that qualifying time, but just not the depth that there once was. Yeah, well, I think I reckon if, if you if you look at the other thing, I think with fat burning as well as fuel, you need volume. And I think, um, like I think we, the way I look at it is when when I was a kid, if I was going to read about running, um, I would have bought a magazine and read what Rob DiCastella did or what Steve Monteghetti did or what Frank Shorter did. And so you were getting information from people that were very good runners. Um, I think the danger for people now is they read content and they're infiltrated with content from people that don't know running, who have an opinion on running and who aren't particularly good at running sometimes. And that's not to be critical, but it's to be that the knowledge and the education that people get, uh, they become lost in thought instead of uh, focused in their action. And I think um, like, uh, I think a lot of it has to come down to the culture of running it used to be driven by people that were very good at it and that normally creates high performance. And when knowledge is is given by people who aren't very knowledgeable and it's it's knowledge of, of limited knowledge, of limited base of scope of knowledge, then you start to get people who don't see their full potential. So I think it's a it's more a case of making sure that our top coaches like your Ken Greens get a voice, um, your Dick Telfords get a voice to, to educate 
um, coaches and make sure that people who are coaching runners are, are focused on developing their knowledge and their understanding of running so that runners get good advice, get good feedback, um, and get a good understanding of what's required to be a good runner. Um, so, yeah, that's the way. I, it's all about education, really, and, and cultural expectation. And you'd see that in the um, the running specialty store as well, wouldn't you? Like there'd be so many people that go out and just get their pair of shoes from Rebel or Athlete's Foot and get charged a, or get kind of um, fitted by a 15-year-old school kid who's working after school compared to possibly getting the, the wrong pair of shoes. Yeah, and I mean, I can't win every war. I think we've been very blessed that, that we've got a lot of people that are sort of loyal loyal to us and, and there's also the fact that people are busy and, and, and convenience is a big factor in, 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 in consumption and, and purchasing. So, uh, look, I think we're pretty happy with our lot, so I think we just sort of have to keep keep trying to focus on, on helping that process. of If someone, you know, like um, if, if those people, uh, we try to share content, I suppose, to our runners from people who know more than us and, and put forward broader perspectives than our own to make sure that, someone knows that we're we're trying to keep learning we don't think that we're we're the best at, at coaching we're trying to get better and better so i think it's all about just making sure that you you continue to learn and you continue to share information from people um other than yourselves so that you, you're loyal to to the sport of running first and foremost and then you're trying to build a good framework to service runners secondly so i try not to get too distracted by what what um people are doing um that i'm not really feeling as though i'm going to learn from um, when there's so many people I could continue to learn from, I try to seek out opportunities to to see people who are doing it better or who could who could add value rather than focus too much on people that can't because otherwise you get bogged down in in wasted negative energy, don't you? Oh, especially this day and age with the internet, as you kind of touched on before, you can type into Google or anything to do with running, and you're going to have a stack of experts telling you the best way to do it. Yeah. Yes, I think that's the thing. I think people need to to run, I think for runners, if I had one bit of advice, critical re- critically reason why you would listen or why you would read what you're reading um, and if someone has a really strong basis for that knowledge it's probably reflective of that and if they don't and they're just you know coming at it from a from a position of opinion um, you need to be able to decipher that because you can find a cluster of information and, and and a lot of it's useless and there's probably a couple of gems there that you might miss yeah for sure hey i'd love to pick your brain on the nike to hour project what do you think of all that Oh look, it's fantastic! I think, um, yeah, I think it was it was absolutely. Uh, oh look, I, I think um, obviously people have different opinions. I, I suppose for me, I, I think uh, watching Kipchoge run was 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 a thing of beauty. His his economy and his his movement and his um, his facial expressions. He just a smile to keep himself going. Uh, look, I think. I think look, it brought attention to the sport of running far broader than what um, maybe it would normally get. So I think that's got to be good, and I think it it showcases the physicality and the strength um, of of those guys. And it was obviously great uh, marketing for for Nike. So I think in, in the whole, uh, there's a things a couple of things you say maybe uh, not the true essence of the sport, um, but um, I think there was a progressive mindset in planning it that was probably a good thing. In summary, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're running group, but the running group I'm involved here in Echuca, like a small town, I had kind of 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, just general runners once and twice a week just come up and talk to me about it. So I thought, you know, they're not talking about any other race in Australia or, or the world, so to have them just talking about it in our local community is good for the sport. Yeah, yeah, and look, I think, I think the, thing, the thing is um, I reckon it also gave um, a real focus on, on sort of how – the high performer um, got 
got got their due. So obviously, you know, a lot of the time, certainly, it's not a singular focus on the marathon um, in consciousness. And I think that that full focus on the marathon. There's a lot of runners that that run marathon that wanted to see a truly just elite marathon. And outside of the Olympics and the World Championships, there's um, not a huge amount of publicity for those those just purely elite type events which in other sports like a, a prize fight or a um you know an mma fight with two top contenders or with a clear focus brings that pay-per-view style of of interest so i think probably commercially it's probably something that away from the conventional model of people running big city marathons i think potentially um more intense combative style of um of athletics has, has maybe got a platform from events like that as well yeah have you got a pair of the shoes no, no, we can't. We haven't got a Nike account, unfortunately, in the oh, shop. Yeah. We've not got them yet. But I, I'd be keen to try them. I, I, we, um, I was fortunate. One of the guys I coach is, um, is in the Australian sort of Paralympic development squad. So I got to go to London and um, and, and watch the marathon um, and see the probably one of the first uses of, of the shoes and have a little bit of a look at them. And certainly, um, they seem to sort of create a quite an effective propulsive mechanism for for the runners. But I think a few of them seem to to fatigue a bit um late they certainly looked like they were running really smooth early so i got to look at a few uh certainly admired some of the thinking behind it that's for sure yeah i want to tap into that travel obviously um i googled you and i come across a couple of photos of you all over the world and as i said in the intro before we started recording that zach newman met you over at lake biwa marathon i think so how does yep. he going over with athletes or how's that all working yeah, so pretty much, I suppose, because we, you know, at any given time, um, we coach a, a lot of runners. Um, we we probably do a fair bit of, I suppose, data analysis on where athletes perform um, well. So we pretty much found that over 85% of our runners who run their marathons in Japan will run PBs, and we've got a lot of people who have done that now. So we're very biased towards um, trying to get our athletes, if they are looking to progress, to continue to see those improvements in time and race in Japan. Um, the depth of fields is better, the courses are better, the weather is cooler, and the time zones are the same. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. So at least once or twice a year, um, our goal is to get our runners up to Japan um, to continue to take those chunks off their off their current PBs. Are you talking like, sub- oh, sorry, you're talking like Biwa and Beppu and Tokyo. Like are they the three main ones you're going to? Yeah, I think we, we, Lake Biwa we, we did a few times. Can be a little bit um, windy, windy, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was good. It's been good to us, but the one that seems to be um, really good is Tokyo. Um, it's just um, it's just a, a perfect combination for us here. It's a quick flight. Um, it's just like we had, um, you know, six go up last year, six six walked away with uh, with very good times, five PBs. One of the guys was coming back off off a bit of an injury and ran ran still his second best time. So it's just. Um, such a great running culture and it's easy for an athlete to to just assimilate straight off the plane into the culture the food's familiar the the life's so uh, routine based that you don't get lost getting around is pretty easy um so we we go there a lot um and we try to bias our our runners towards that and say melbourne um so that we can try to get a group of athletes building up together and and in a community towards um their big marathon so we get a bit of momentum not just internal to the athlete but around them as well um, and so that's sort of with Japan's our big, I suppose, long-term plan is until we got an athlete to break 210, um, I probably wouldn't bother sending them anywhere but um, but 
Japan for their marathons um, because I don't think there's any need to bring in external variables um, which which are essentially controllables and trying to travel across time zones and into different climates with um, all the risks attached to that when the athlete probably just needs to continue to develop physiologically um, and just keep taking incremental gains in performance. Yeah, yeah that's the way get, I would view it. Do you get them in a ride or like you go through the ballot or because Tokyo is pretty hard to get into, isn't it? Uh, Tokyo introduced us, letting the cat out of the bag. I hope they keep, keep getting, <laughs> but I think the, um, the sub elite category, um, for the Tokyo marathon has been, um, uh, quite good for our runners in that sort of category. So the, the, there's a c- category of, of runners, um, for a sort of sub elite that that's been quite, um, quite good for our runners to get into Tokyo. Um, it's a bit harder to get into Lake Biwa and, and stuff like that, but certainly, um for for tokyo that last few years we've got um like i said four five six runners um running in the race off the back of of that sub elite category yeah and i also come across a photo of you with renata canova where was that taken uh that was at the london marathon in um uh in april so i got to have a chat with a great man and pick his brain his uh great storytelling um is a it was a, a good 30 minutes yeah got to chat with him in london yeah right what'd you get out of him anything you can share like do you believe like some of his sessions are massive and kind of you're on the final line between getting super fit and getting injured but um what's your opinion on that stuff uh well look i I grew up watching um great italian runners like um you know baldini um and and antibo and cova and uh, like alessandri all the great italian runners of the 80s so i've seen obviously italian running just fall off a cliff a little bit and then Kenyan running go up and so you just get to ask the same questions that we talked about with Deke and Mono while we're getting slower he's seen he's seen both sides and I think his his the thing he said to me that made a lot of sense is as people find a more comfortable life they're less willing to to suffer and so in Kenya there's still a lot of guys that are wild and and open-eyed to take on a lot of physical work and um, I described how we're starting working with kids in schools and and it's interesting, his, the way he said it to me is it's great that you've got the motivation, but make sure you don't burn yourself out trying to help everybody when ultimately the kid that's going to be great will come to you. And the, the, the way he would describe it is when he's running in Kenya, he just has to run his elite group past a school and there's three or four kids that will chase. They want to run, focus on them. And, and that's, that's the way he views things very much through a, a benevolent sort of storytelling lens and when he when he says that it makes a lot of sense because you can spend a lot of energy as a coach trying to motivate people who aren't intrinsically motivated and at the end of the day someone who's going to be good is intrinsically motivated it's not the coach's job to motivate it's the coach's job to to provide logical precedent and logical structure for a motivated athlete to do um and so that's probably the the thing i took away from him the most and if they're willing to do work um, and they've got that sort of ambition, then what they will do is different from what other people will do. They'll, they'll work harder, they'll work longer, um, they'll work more focused, and they'll, they'll perform better as a result. So I think the one thing is someone's got to want to be a world champion for them to be a world champion. They've got to want to they want to be great to be great. It doesn't happen through the coach wanting them to be great. Um, yeah. So that was a good thing that, that he told me. And I think, look, if you look at if you look at long distance running, and you know, like I, I sort of the other thing is, I think there's a learnt conservatism about um, looking at what he does and how he described it to me with those long race specific sessions. We 
we um, we spoke. I spoke with him, but we also had a really good meeting with like a um, a sports psychologist who's worked with the military, um, and he says if we're going to send somebody to war, we need to simulate war in their training for war. And so what he said was we're sending people into races and into environments where they don't feel equipped. So if they haven't got a precedent of going into the marathon and running strong for a long period of time, they're going to be worried that they're not fit enough to run that marathon. And the whole marathon is one of negative reinforcement and fear. He goes, you've got to, you've got to do the psychologist and Canova say the same thing. If you're going to send someone into a marathon, you've got to get them close to the fire so that they're confident they can run that marathon well. And then on the all they're getting from the race is a couple percent more. And I think that's the one thing. Like I think with the marathon training, if someone's really fit and strong, the long distance running is very aerobic. It's not as though it's it's smashing the body. If you're strong, um, as long as you don't, it's a fine line. But you can you can go pretty close to the fire without cooking the cooking the body. So I think it probably is important that we focus on building athletes up more, and then you can test them and give them a stronger precedent to take into the into the into the race itself. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I put a few of his sessions into my Berlin build-up for last year and just felt, I think mentally you feel so much more confident, as you said, um, just knowing you could look back in your training diary and see those kind of 30K sessions and, um, yeah, just to know you've nailed them in a little park in a country town compared to uh, when you get to the start line at Berlin. It just gives you so much extra confidence. Yeah, look, what we, we, we had um, uh, a sports psychologist um, who, who, like I said, gave us that insight from the military. So what he said to us was he said um, what you should do is is get the athlete also to have to travel. So we, we actually now we bought a training camp now four hours from Perth in the coast in a place called um, Dunsborough, which is in Margaret River. And when our athletes are preparing for a big marathon, we run a training camp where we, we normally do like 20 k's on trails to try to soften them up, not a set pace. But then when they come off the trails, we sort of shift into the, the shoe they're going to race in and try to get them right up at their aerobic threshold for a good um, 12, 16 or, or 18 k's, depending on how strong they are, and, and really try to get them up near their, their race pace. And what we found was the PB rate and the... The, the 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 race simulation was was has been hugely successful in converting um training fitness into race specific fitness and i think what 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 i used to find was when we were trying to you get to the race and you get into this period called the taper and you don't really have any precedent for the athlete they're trying to gauge off a, a 10k time or a 5k time or and they know that there's no relevance with those two variables in a marathon so they become very nervous because they haven't really got a precedent not to be they don't really know what they're going to run for the marathon so they start guessing and when you do those long runs and if you start we look at a lot of data and you, we speak with a lot of scientists, you can see what's happening. It, it, it's a fueling thing and it's a strength thing in the muscular system. And if you understand what's happening, you know, we can predict without, you know, there's always variability. But as an athlete gets better, it's quite easy to predict performance. And then all you have to factor in is the climatic conditions and stuff like that um, into the thinking. And obviously you can't control all the variables, but it's a lot more predictable than you might think when you get that precedent of a, of a very specific training session um, under the belt because the data doesn't really lie. It, it tells you what's happening in that athlete. Um, and if you look at it and you know they're going to freshen up and you know they're going to start to reduce their load and absorb that load, um, then you can be quite confident. And then the athlete doesn't attend to every case split in the first 10K that is running to, to a heart rate or to a to a longer-term process and knowing that the, the big thing is the back end, not the, not the front, front end. 
Yeah. Hey, uh, you've given away so many pieces of good wisdom as it is, but I'm wondering one of the final questions, if you could probably leave the listeners with three things for them to, to implement or think about in their training. I know I'm putting you on the spot a bit. Um, I reckon for most runners, I think the one thing, do running drills and focus on biomechanics, um, especially uh, I reckon 10 to 15% of every session should be spent on sort of dynamic stretching, uh, not every session, sorry, every session above uh, above tempo threshold or VO2. So if you're going to do anything that's broken uh, in its nature, try to spend 10 or 15 minutes doing uh, running drills, hurdles, ladders, stuff like that just to try to improve your ground contact time um, and, and, and focus on developing your biomechanics. Don't just run uh, in a physiological model because your physiology will eventually be limited by your biomechanics if you don't work on it. Um, secondly, strength and conditioning. If you're, if you're a beginner, do Pilates, get more stable. If you're progressing um, and you're getting more confident, do some functional um, strength with like a physio who's who's good in functional strength. And then if you're an elite, I think you should see a strength and conditioning coach because they're, they're not um, limited in their brain by a fear of pain because they're only focused on performance. So I think you need to make sure your strength and conditioning progresses with your performance so that th- there's no point for me, for most of my elite runners, um, doing Pilates because it doesn't produce enough, it doesn't recruit enough muscle fibre, it's not creating enough of an adaptation for me to see benefit within the context of their whole week a lot of the time. If they're full-time professional, maybe as a recovery tool it could work, but for most of them they're not professional. So I think as you as you uh, focus on physiological progression, you should focus on biomechanical com- uh, progression um, and then have fun. Find a good group and, um, and make sure... Um, you work with a good team and you and you never out what did she say never outrun the joy of running it's yeah. it's the best thing in the world just to to go for a trot so i just got back from back from one now and you know you feel better so that's 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 probably the three things mate you do thanks for that plenty of uh, good pieces of advice there the last question i ask everyone raf is what's their life philosophy or mantra or a quote that you kind of always tap into and always try to live your life by it's a good one mate um I reckon do what you're passionate about, because then it's not it isn't work. If you're doing if you're doing what uh, what you love, I think with our with everything that we do, we're lucky we're doing something we're really passionate about, um, and so that's that's a blessing. That's a good thing. Beautiful, mate. I reckon we'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate all those pieces of wisdom uh, in the running world. Thanks, Brady. Appreciate it, mate. No worries, mate. Thank you. That was episode number 37 of Tell Me Your Tales. Hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully it brought a bit of value to your life in one way or another. Plenty to think about after that podcast. Um, Yeah, just I guess the the way they're looking forward over there in Perth is really kind of inspirational. They're kind of long-term plan and the way they've got the best people in the fields kind of uh, working under that one umbrella and getting the best out of their athletes. As I said in the introduction, I think it's very innovative and 
um, probably the way forward with running and physio and strength and conditioning and specialist uh, clothing and footwear all in the one, one spot can only be a good thing. Thanks for tuning in again. Really appreciate the fact that you took the time to download that and gave up an hour of your time to uh, listen to it. Hope your running's going well or your life or whatever. Uh, well, I hope your life and your running are both going well. But yeah, whatever you're chasing at the moment, I hope that's going well. Until next week, guys. See you later. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.